This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. I'm Adam Grant. I'm here with Dan Ariely, leading behavioral economist at Duke, author of Predictably Irrational, The Upside of Irrationality. We're going to talk today about his newest book, The Honest Truth About Dishonesty. Dan, welcome. My pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me. Enlighten us. In organizations, how common is dishonesty? Very common. Um, but the, the thing that is common is not uh, big cheaters. The common things are little cheaters. And there's a couple of things that are special about organizations. But, but let's take one step back and ask the question about cheating. Um, so what we find is that lots of people can cheat a little bit. And what happens is that if we cheat a lot, we face not being caught, we face the possibility that we will feel bad about ourselves. So we play a game within ourselves. You know, sometimes we think about game theory as kind of a game between two parties. It's also a game within a person. So you say to yourself, I want to think of myself as good, honest, wonderful person, and I selfishly want to benefit from dishonesty. And it turns out that you can cheat a little bit and still feel good about yourself. So that is the general lesson that we find. And just kind of to give you an estimation, we ran experiments on cheating close to 50,000 people so far, and we find a handful of big cheaters, and we lost a few hundred dollars to big cheaters. And we, we found more than 30,000 little cheaters, and we lost tens of thousands, 60,000, dollars to the little cheaters. So, you know, we think about the big cheaters, but the reality is that the economic, because there are few of them, the economic activity that we need to worry about is all, all the little cheaters. Okay, so that's, that's the first step. Now, one of the things that happens in organization is that you get to observe bad behavior. Right? And if you, if you can think about it, there's something really asymmetrical about observing good behavior and observing bad behavior. So uh, bad behavior, uh, when you see it, it's incredibly salient. You see people behaving a certain way, and then there's a chance that you would find that this is actually acceptable. So imagine a consulting company that has a policy that says, if you stay until 9 o'clock in the evening, you get to order in dinner and get a black limo to come and pick you up to go home. And, and some people stay late. And one person stays until 9, orders food, takes it with him. At 9.01, he's downstairs. This is incredibly selling to everybody that he waited one minute, he obeyed between the law. And uh, what happened in cases like this is very quickly, everybody at 901 is gone. It's clearly not fulfilling the goal of the organization. It stays within the rules, but really kind of abusing things. And from there on, you can see other deterioration. So we see things like that happening all the time. And you know, organizations have this challenge of how flexible to make the rules. So I've, I've looked over the last few years at all kinds of code of conduct for different organizations. And I think they're all being put in place with good meaning but they're so fuzzy, like we care about our customers, we have fiduciary responsibility. You know, they're so general that the range of gray zones within them allows good people to really uh, misbehave. Uh, by the way, one of the interesting questions is what is the role of leadership in all of that? And to what extent can uh, a leader uh, change uh, how, people, how people in the organization behave from, from this perspective? And, and I don't know. Um, 
Another interesting question is the question of whistleblowers. Um, and I haven't studied whistleblowers. It's very tough. And, you know, the U.S. recently changed the regulation on whistleblowers. So uh, companies are now told to treat whistleblowers nicely. And they also get a bigger share of what the U.S. government recovers in, the, in this new legislation. But is this really what's going to, to happen? And I, I get lots of emails from whistleblowers. And with one exception, they were all women. And it's not that more women write to me than, than men. And, and I think this, is, this will sound not nice, but I think that it's easier for women to be whistleblowers because they don't start by being part of the boys' club. And... Uh, everybody, every whistleblower who wrote to me said that they are basically become an outsider to society. And they become an outsider to the people that they betrayed within the organization, but also their regular friends stop trusting them. And it's a really interesting thing, right? So I, I, look, I think of my kids. I have two kids. And when one of them come and say, oh, my brother or my sister did this, I said, I want you to solve the problem yourself, right? So even within kids, and I'm sure they might have legitimate concerns, somehow appealing to a higher external authority rather than solving things internally is offensive in terms of kind of how the system is created. So, so anyway, um, so I think businesses need to think about what is the code of conduct, how specific versus general it is, how is good behavior and bad behavior transmitted through society, to, through their organization, um, and then what do we do with uh, things like whistleblowers? How do, we, how do we make it acceptable? Because, you know, whistleblowers come from time to time, uh, but if they could come in earlier, the organization might save themselves lots of trouble. But by the time they, everybody, everything is waiting so long, it can have be devastating. Now, what's interesting about the whistleblowers, actually, is that they're sort of the counterpoint in some ways to the little cheaters, yeah. it would seem. Or are they, in fact, the same people? So I don't know if they... I don't know if those people who are uh, whistleblowers are kind of pure people. I doubt it, uh, right? Are they the people who never tell their spouse, honey, you look good in that dress or something like that, or uh, being socially polite and don't tell white lies? I don't think this is what, what they are. And um, I'll tell you something else. Um, I've done lots of uh, discussions with big cheaters, uh, insider trading, accounting fraud, people who've done um, selling games in the NBA, all kinds of things like that, doping in sports. And with one exception, all of them were stories of slippery slopes. All of them, you, know, you, look, you look at the sequence of the events, you look at the end, and you say, my goodness, what kind of monster would, would do this? But then you look at the first step they took, and you say, I can see myself under the right amount of pressure behaving badly. And then they took another step, another step, another step. Um, and, and I think most of organizations go down a slippery slope rather than having some vicious, vicious plan. And the question is, at that slippery slope, at what point is it passing a threshold that somebody is saying something is really wrong here? And in, in some sense, you have to not buy into the mindset of the slippery slope. The question is, how can you, how can you actually get there? How can you be a, an outsider to this? So, so I think that's probably the benefit. The benefit is probably being an outsider and not buying into this worldview of what's going on. So, so I'll give you one example. Um, doping in sports. Think about cycling. Uh, I talked to all kinds of cyclists who doped, not Lance Armstrong. Um, and 
And the story is basically, one story was a guy who, at some point, got a, an address for a physician from one of his team members. And he went to that physician, somebody with a white coat and a stethoscope, and, and that person gave him a prescription for the pharmacy. And he went to the pharmacy and he got EPO, which is a, a drug that increases the production of red blood cells. It's a, used for cancer treatment. And his insurance paid for it, and it because he got he had a prescription, and he got the injections. And he, for the first time he injected my, himself, he was thinking about it, but he said after that it just became part of his routine. It was just one of the many many steps he was taking throughout the day: vitamins, do this, do this, do this. But after he started doing that, then he realized everybody was doing it, and then they started doing it in public, and then he moved to another team, and in that team. <laughs> The people who were running the team were getting people to order what drugs they want in addition to EPO. And moving from just EPO to another drug was very simple. And then later on, there was a shortage of EPO. But he knew some people from a Chinese cycling team. So they put him in touch with a factory that produces EPO, and he imported it. Then he started selling drugs. I mean, you, you could see how things go on. Eventually, he was a drug dealer. But, but this is not how he started, right? And I think that's, that's the issue. And almost all the people I talked to, again, aside from one, basically looked at the end and said, how did I get there? This is not me. But when you're in it, and if you remember when Lance Armstrong was in Oprah, uh, she asked him, when you were in the middle of things, did you feel you were cheating? Did you feel you were doing something wrong? And he said, no. And he sounded like a psychopath when he was saying that. But from everything I know, he was right. He was truthful at that moment. When you're in the midst of it, you're in a very, very different mindset. And in your mind, you're not a psychopath and you're not cheating. You're doing what everybody else is doing. And it's true that you don't talk about it, but that's, that's how things are getting done. Well, that, that slippery slope, if you think about the idea of starting with a gateway drug and then falling down sort of this ladder of rationalization, it, if I'm a leader, it makes me think a little bit differently about my role. What I want to be doing is actually studying the cases where people have committed ethical or legal violations, looking backward at where they started, and then defining my code of conduct more clearly about those initial steps. Is that where you would come down? I think exactly, because you know, if you think about that, it means that the first step is incredibly dangerous, because it's not just the first step. And usually we say, oh, it's just a small step, or it's just the beginning. No, it's, it's not just the beginning. It actually has tremendous ramification, particularly if you think that it's an observable act. So um, as we were talking earlier, I, I recently came from a discussion of uh, honor code in the military, the Virginia Military Academy, uh, Navy, and, and so on. Um, and, and there's a real trade-off between a person is taking the wrong step how much do you punish them if you think about that person versus thinking about the organization? And it's a very different story. Actually, you remember at Duke, there was this uh, big uh, honor code violation? So maybe seven years ago, there was a big honor code violation at Duke. Lots of the students started the simulation from the same number. So they ended up with the same results, so they knew they were uh, copying from each other. And at the time, I was cheating. I was uh, cheating. I was teaching. Uh, <laughs> just a little bit. Yeah, though. just a little bit. Um, I was teaching at MIT, uh, and there was a story, I think, in the Wall Street Journal. And, and I, I brought the story to the class, and we were talking about uh, the cheating uh, at Duke. And the students said, we do it all the time. Why, why are you expelling 
those students. And and I, I think they're probably right. I think that the students, yeah, I, I don't know the case. It was not, I was not there at the time. And also it's an honor code, so it's a closed thing. But I suspect that those students did not understand the seriousness of the, what they were doing. They were probably in a system where people were collaborating for a long time and there was deterioration. And by creating this harsh punishment and eliminating lots of, lots of students and you know, giving them very, very harsh punishment, the students probably got a harsher punishment than they would deserve if you thought of them as individuals. But for the organization, it really helped because six years later, it's really clear to the students what are the right and wrong uh, levels and what do you step in and don't step. So I think there is this interesting trade-off between the, the benefit of the individual and what do we think about forgiveness versus what do we think about the cohesiveness of the organization and how clear the rules are. Yeah, it's a classic question of, of retribution versus deterrence. Mm-hmm. And it seems like in this case, you're at least willing to err a little bit on the side of deterrence, even if it unfairly punishes a few. Yeah, I'm not sure I would call it deterrence, but it would basically be for the strictness and clarity of the rules, for the clarity of what are the norms and what are the, what's the right and wrong behavior. Now, this is, this is a little bit frightening if we put together the different pieces of the puzzle that you've constructed. If slippery slopes happen and most people are willing to cheat a little bit, what do you do to prevent people from taking that first step? Yeah, so, so I, think, I think code of conduct are incredibly important for companies, um, but companies are wrong in how flexible they make these kind of, uh, code of conducts look like. So um, when you have a serious code, it's easier to see if you're on the right or wrong side of it. When you have something that is very fuzzy, it's hard for us to see that we're violating it. So think about something like Alcoholic Anonymous. Right? The, the rule is very clear, no drinking whatsoever. Uh, what would happen if the rule was half a glass a day? Right? We would get very big glasses, you would drink today on account of tomorrow. I mean, there'll be all kinds of trade-offs. And in general, we don't like very clear-cut rules because we understand the exceptions. We understand that we cannot create a good rule, but good rules really help us, and they help us to figure out for ourselves what's good. Um, dieting, by the way, is the same thing. If you have a clear rule about what you eat and don't eat, it's really easy. If every time you have to ask yourself about another fork, that's really, really hard. So if you think about the human brain as being a rationalization machine that is going to rationalize what's good for us in the short term, not what's good for us in the long term, and not what's good for the organization, rules basically eliminate some of that ability to rationalize. Um, and it's not that it's a panacea, right? Because if you create uh, strict rules, it, it makes lots of things much more complex, but I think we need those. Let's take a step back. You're obviously widely admired for generating some fairly unusual and unconventional ideas. Mostly I'm admired by my uh, mother and daughter. <laughs> those are the most important sources of admiration, I would argue, but wh- where do your ideas come from? So very infrequently from academic papers, um, Mostly it's from uh, talking to people. Um, uh, some, some from reading the news and seeing something interesting, but lots from talking, uh, talking to people and seeing what people are struggling with and what are some of the challenges. And, all. Um, and you know, in the last, uh, I don't know, six years, I'm also getting lots of emails from people who read stuff that I, I wrote about and ask me questions. I'll give you one example. Um, I, I got an email from a, a woman who told me that she was diagnosed with brain cancer 
and she asked me how to tell her kids. So uh, I, I was a burn patient, and I did studies on how to remove bandages, remove them quickly, remove them slowly, and she made a connection, and she said, should she tell them all at once? She tell them uh, over time. Now, it's not exactly the same question as removing bandages, so I didn't have an answer for this. So I talked to all my physician friends. Nobody knew what is the right answer. And I was in New York 10 days later, so I met her for, uh, for coffee, and we, we discussed this because, you know, it's not something I feel comfortable. And, and eventually the conclusion was that if her kids ever found out that she was misleading them, they'll be very hard to regain trust, so maybe she should tell them all, all at once. But this question of how do you reveal bad news uh, started, started uh, becoming very interesting for me. This was about three years ago. So now we have a big project in which we're following doctors around the hospital, uh, observing how they tell bad news to, to patients, really bad news, cancer, end-of-life treatment, stuff like that, and trying to figure out what are the mistakes and what are the better ways uh, to do that. Um, so, so things like that happened where you basically say, my goodness, this is a big question that people are struggling with. We don't know the answer. Uh, maybe we should try and figure it out. And stuff like this is happening all the time. Mm-hmm. Well, it sounds like paying attention then to the questions that come on your plate is, is one source of ideas. Yeah, absolutely. One question from me to close on. Uh, behavioral economics has gained a lot of steam in the past decade. It's, I think, one of the most probably popular scientific movements in history. You are a behavioral economist, yet you have two PhDs in psychology. And I've noticed frequently that my work gets labeled as behavioral economics when, in fact, it's coming from a psychological perspective. Why is behavioral economics cooler than psychology when, in fact, often they're the same thing? And what's the future of these two fields in your view? Yeah. So, so I'm not sure if it's cooler than psychology is the right, uh, is the right way. Um, so here's the thing. Uh, economics is both a descriptive and a prescriptive uh, discipline. It describes something about how people behave and then also tell policymakers and businesses how to conduct things. And I think for a long time, psychology has basically stayed on the descriptive side. Here's how people behave. And economics has gained tremendous effect, uh, impact because of the prescriptive side of things. And behavioral economics, in my mind, is basically a counteraction to that. Right. So if, if uh, uh, economic... Uh, academics would have stayed within the university, I don't think anybody would want to attack them. I mean, everybody's entitled to their own theory, right? I mean, why not attack people in philosophy or history? I mean, you can attack lots of other people. And we're really not attacking economics in the disciplinary sense of, you know, economics is a beautiful field of study. It explains maybe 30% of the human variants. It's great. But when you take this theory and you say, this is it and this is everything, and now you should build bridges and cities or, you know, the equivalent tax systems and healthcare systems and so on, based on that, now it becomes dangerous. So behavioral economics in my mind is not against the economic discipline as much as the application of it. And I, I'm actually hopeful that we're not going to debate each other because that's, there's really no, no much point in this. We really need to be empirical. So the point about behavioral economics is the truth is we have to be a bit more modest. We don't know that much. The world is much more complex. And we should be open to admitting that we don't know, and we should do experiments. And I'm imagining a future in which every discipline does its own thing. But when we come to policy, no child left behind, taxes, healthcare, whatever, 
every discipline says, here is what I think are the important things, and here is how what I think is the right setup. And together we build the right experiments and we see uh, what's working. So I, I'm hoping that we'll get a field of experimental social science that will be used for government, will be used for businesses, and so on. And the input for it could be everything, right? Why, why not have philosophy and why not have sociology, anthropology, and psychology and economics? It's all, it's all perfectly fine. So that's my uh, wishful thinking for the future. I think it's an exciting vision. Let's bring great thinkers together, let them collaborate on the design of experiments, agree on the outcomes in advance, and yep. then let the best policy win. That's right. Thank you, Dan. My pleasure. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.